Welcome to a brand new episode of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle, brought to you by Boston Market's all-new Nashville Hot Chicken Sandwich. The chicken sandwich wars are over. Enter the Nashville Hot Crispy Chicken Sandwich from Boston Market. The rotisserie everything experts and reigning chicken royalty for more than 30 years are heating things up this winter and putting competitors to shame with its first ever crispy chicken sandwich. Available for a limited time, guests can fire up their taste buds with the Oh Yeah, You're Gonna Sweat Nashville Hot Crispy Chicken Sandwich, plus two additional Nashville Hot menu offerings, including a spicy new take on its famous rotisserie chicken. Available at Boston Market restaurants for a limited time. In addition to being served in restaurant or via drive-thru where available, all menu items from Boston Market can be ordered for takeout, delivery, and contactless curbside pickup by visiting bostonmarket.com or placing an order via the Boston Market app. For additional information on Boston Market, its newest menu offerings, brand news, or to find your nearest location, please visit bostonmarket.com and follow at Boston Market on social media. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 30 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am, of course, Matt Cohan, and I am joined, as always, by my main man, Arthur Cade. Stop me if you've heard this before, but we have an excellent episode today with not one, not two, but three guests for our hustlers today. First, we are interviewing two fighters from the world's fastest growing sport, bare knuckle fighting champion, former UFC star Chris the Crippler Lieben, and Quentin the Hero Henry on top of that. And then as a dessert, Arthur, you know, just three-time Super Bowl champion Darren Woodson. Right, just the greatest safety in Cowboys history, turned successful broadcaster, turned podcaster, turned one of the best interviews we've had on the series so far, talking about people getting arrested in Dallas. I mean, pretty solid episode, I'd say, Matt. I would 100% say that. But first, you know, the BKFC, I'm not sure if our listeners are fully enveloped in this sport yet, but it, it is a sport that Paige Van Sant has shifted over to after her UFC career. On February 5th, tomorrow, actually, Knucklemania, it's the sport's biggest event in its three-year history here. It's in Lakeland, Florida. You can buy it on pay-per-view. There's plenty of information on brobible.com. All of our editors are hyped about this. You know, there's a reason Shaq went on BKFC 15 in December and said it's going to be, it's the future of combat sports. And you get a bunch of former UFC people getting behind this. So it was awesome to talk to Lieben and Henry at sort of a press conference type style, our, our first of that uh, nature, Arthur. Yeah, Lieben, I mean, talk about intense. I was actually scared even talking to him over the Zoom. The guy is just locked in. And then to see Quentin Henry, who's this up-and-coming fighter for BKFC, the respect that he was showing Lieben, because Lieben is one of those guys – he is the prototypical, hey, started on the ultimate fighter, worked my way up through the rise of the UFC, and now towards the end of my career, I'm transitioning into this super up-and-coming sport. But as you had mentioned, Matt, Paige Van Zandt making her headlining debut against Britton Hart in this. Paige is obviously just a monster name, mainstream name. She's got like 2.8 million Instagram followers. We, of course, had her on the show. That was a huge hit. Johnny Bedford and Dat Wynn are the co-headliner fight. 
for those who haven't seen Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship, I'm a huge boxing and MMA fan. It does not get any more exciting than this. I'm not just saying that because we have them on the show. It is so freaking exciting to see these people fighting. It is like a street fight. You know, people are always fascinated. You see these YouTube videos with this random fights of people just confronting each other on the street. To actually see it organized, skilled fighters getting in the ring with each other and being able to go no holds barred and just pound each other. I love it. I'm so excited for Knucklemania. And I think it's going to be pretty cool. As you had mentioned, Matt, it's available to watch on pay-per-view and Fight TV. Two preliminary fights will be broadcast on BKFC's YouTube and Facebook pages starting at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And the one thing I also want to talk about with BKFC, you'd mentioned Shaq. But Chris Lieben touched on this in our interview. Right now, BKFC feels like the early days of the UFC. It is like that moment where you're witnessing a seed become an enormous flower. There is no doubt in my mind that within a few years, BKFC will be a monster. 100%. In full disclosure, I went down a 45-minute BKFC rabbit hole on YouTube, and it was like I felt after like I had just jumped out of a plane or like it was like clean after performing Live Aid. It was such a rush. And obviously we had Paige on here, like you mentioned, and, you know, Obviously, she's going to rep up the the brand that she's, you know, joined on to. But, like, it was palpable the way she was talking about this. Like, I, I can't wait just for people to see their first fight. If they just watch their first fight, then they'll be hooked. And, I mean, I watched 45 minutes. It was after dinner last night. And I was just, like, so hyped up on this. And I'm a, I'm a, a casual UFC guy. But this one, it's just, it's like lightning in a bottle. It's so much riding on every second, it feels like. And it's, I don't know, it just really captivated me. So February 5th, tomorrow, I am 100% paying that $39.99 to watch uh, what will be an awesome, awesome event at Knuckle Mania. A, you need a life, Matt. 45 minutes into a rabbit hole, you need a life. Time to go get a life, brother. I'm just kidding. <laughs> My fiance was watching Sex in the City, so she gave me a pass. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to kind of roll into this. Yeah, no, I, I'm in full agreement with you, Matt. It, this is going to be just lightning in a bottle. BKFC is, we're, we're at the beginning of something great. And for us to be able to feature two of their primetime fighters and their headliner all within a span of two weeks was super exciting. And without further ado, here's Chris Lieben and Quentin Henry from the Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship. Now we welcome on the Endless Hustle, Chris the Crippler Levin and Quentin the Hero Henry. These guys will be facing off at Knuckle Mania. The Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship's biggest event of the year, Friday, February 5th. Hello, fellas. What up? What up? Let's start off, you know, a little introduction from you guys for our listeners. Chris, we'll start with you. Yeah, my name's Chris Lieben. Uh, I fought in the UFC, and um, after that, I started doing Bare Knuckle. This will be my fourth Bare Knuckle uh, appearance, um, and in uh, my last fight, I just turned 40. I'm looking to get in, you know, I'm, I'm refereeing and judging and coaching. And Quentin here has been uh, awesome enough to, uh, to take this fight. So we're going to get after it come uh, February 5th. Chris, after so many years in the UFC, how has Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship been a change for you? It reminds me of the UFC back in the day. Like back when you were like, is this shit really legal? Like... 
you know, there's there's an edge about bare knuckle that that, that just attracts it, it attracts me and it attracts people in general. You know, at first when I heard about it, I was like, I don't know how that's gonna work. And then when I watched it on YouTube, I was like, this fucking sport is incredible, man. If there was ever a sport for me, this is the one, you know. Um, and I'll tell you this for your average fan. You know, like even me being a, a black belt in jujitsu, sometimes I get bored when these when fights are on the ground. You watch, everybody understands a fist fight. Everybody gets who's everybody knows who's winning. Everybody knows who's losing. Um, it, it's just impossible to not be excited. Quentin, for you, you're a relative newcomer to BKFC, but you had one of the most exciting knockouts I think I've ever seen in my life. That 25 second knockout was fucking bonkers. What is it like for you been, being part of BKFC? Pretty cool, man. You know, um, like Chris is saying, it's something that's like a lot of people, like when you tell them that's what you do, they're all like, is that that's legal? Like you can actually do that? I'm like, yeah, man, it's totally safe. Like that's the biggest thing that I like about it is just because it just seems so raw. Like Chris was saying, you know, it's a, it's a fist fight. Everybody knows who's winning. Everybody sees it. Everybody understands what's going on. You know, when fights go to the ground, a lot of times it's, unless you are a high level black belt or something, you don't understand what's going on. You know, it just looks like two guys, you know, uh, caught up in, in the passion, you know, and you don't know what, what they're doing there, you know, but everybody, everybody understands what it means to throw these dick beaters, you know, it's just, it's just how it goes. Quentin, Chris has been through a record 22 middleweight fights in the UFC. He's nearly a decade older than you. Do you think he has what it takes to go the distance? Can he go five to six rounds? Yeah, absolutely. I think he could go 25 rounds if he wanted to, you know, that's just, and we both train for that, you know, but that's the thing with bare knuckle is that it only takes one and it's just one slip up or one shot, this and there, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, 40 is not that old, you know, and if you, you follow Chris and you kind of see the things that he does as far as taking care of his body and, and being healthy and a lot of the things that he does, you know, you can still perform, at that age, no problem. Uh, you know, my dad's 60 and he still works out and spars with me, you know, but it's, it's about how you take care of yourself, you know? So to say that he's too old to fight is that that's ridiculous that, you know, that's never entered my mind. I'm a, I'm from the South, you know, we're a firm believer in the saying, you know, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not anticipating him being any less than what he's ever been his whole career, you know? So it'd be, it'd be a discredit to say that. Quentin, I read a great article and you had a quote about fighting is your therapy. You have just an incredible story, especially over the last year. You found out that you have tumors. Luckily, they were benign. Then we obviously enter this horrendous pandemic. You have two MMA gyms that are essentially shut down. When you're going through that type of situation, how does BKFC and also fighting help with your therapy? The, the fact that I was could fight but couldn't was more of a stressor than anything, you know, but it's the same reason anybody does anything. You know, everybody has a hobby and you need a hobby to, to, to get your mind off of things, you know, and if your hobby doesn't completely consume your, your attention, then it's not effective for me. And I'm sure, you know, Chris does this for a living, guys like us, that's, that's our sanctuary. You know, when we're there, nobody's bothering me nobody's, you know, I'm not thinking about the fact that I don't have bills due and I can't work. You know, none of that's in my head. It's just about one more rip, you know, one more round, you know, this and that. So, you know, and when, when you go through tough times, uh, depending on what type of person you are, you dig deeper in those situations and, 
And, you know, when you find yourself able to, to really find a home in your sanctuary, that's where you, that's where you start to evolve. Chris, uh, QT here said he was going to give you the hard dick for one round. I take it you're not going to uh, bend over willingly on that one. You know, no. I mean, just like when you guys asked him about, you know, if I can go five rounds. I, I You know, I think either one of us can go five rounds. Neither one of us is planning on it, though. Uh, you know, I, I, I can assure you that, you know, this fight is going to start fast. It's going to, it's going to start quick, you know, and, and uh, it may very well be over in one round. You know, but like I've said before, I'm doing everything I can to make sure that that's him, not me, that's getting drug out of there. But one of us for sure is going to get carried out. Chris, what's that feeling like when you knock someone out? You ever seen Highlander? You know, when they take the dude's, the immortal's power, you know, kind of like, that's kind of how I feel. I mean, as much as I love, you know, subbing a guy, there's no feeling like just watching the life drain out of somebody when you, when you crank them in the face, you know, and they just collapse. I felt that in my soul. I think I just had my, my immortal skills sucked out just hearing that. Before the fight, when you're walking into the arena or down the aisle here, Quentin, we'll start with you. How are you guys those moments before the fight, before the bell rings? I think for everybody, it's a fight or flight thing. You start hitting into that adrenaline. Um, you understand that it's a, it's a serious situation you're about to get into. And uh, you got to decide whether you're going to fight or you're, you're going to run. And, uh, you know, you choose to fight. And that's kind of what you're going with right there. You know, it's uh, it's like, uh, you know, you get a heightened sense of what's going on. And, uh, yeah, you have to you, – you develop a, a persona, per se, or you just – you develop – you're in the tunnel zone, you know. So, yeah, it's a different – it's a totally different mindset you got to get in before you, before you go in there and go to battle. When, when you hear that Chris says he's going to body bag you, what's your reaction to that? Oh, that was so cool. <laughs> uh, you know, I like it. You know, I'm not mad about it. We uh, it just it, that's the goal. You know what I mean? I was I was thinking today. Uh, you know, that's that's what's so exciting about BKFC, and people don't understand. And I I don't know if everybody that fights for BKFC feels this way, but the way that I feel with it is that I don't I don't get paid to win. I get paid to fight. It doesn't matter if I win or if I lose, as long as I go out there and I fight my ass off. So. You know, that's that's really the biggest part of it for me, you know, is that, you know, in MMA, one loss sets you back two or three years in your career. It doesn't matter how exciting that loss was or how badass the opponent was. It, it sets you back. And in this sport, it's about who wants to go out there and fight and put on a show. And a lot of guys in MMA and other sports have forgot that this is about entertainment. You know, you're supposed to go out there, entertain, have fun. It's not about getting the easy, you know, easy W or getting the safe W. It's about going out there and enjoying yourself and doing what you come to do. The guys who are in there just to just to get a safe win and do this, they need to go play rugby or some other shit. Like, you know what I mean? This is the wrong sport for them. Chris, you had a great soundbite earlier about comparing BKFC to the early days of the UFC. When you look at what Dave Feldman's vision is and what he's been able to build and how quickly he's been able to build it, talk to me about that comparison of what you're seeing with what's happening with BKFC. It's pretty incredible. I mean, where the sport has, what, what he's done with it, you know, and in the short time that it's been legal, the, just the, the progress that it's made from being something completely obscure to being on every combat sports website. I mean, come February 5th, everybody's going to be reporting on, on these fights, on, on who won, how they went. Um, 
you know, and I, and I think there's two things. I think definitely you got to credit Dave Feldman, but also, fuck, man, the sport is exciting. He knew he was holding fire in a bottle, you know? There's nothing you can do. You got a sport like that. Listen, if it was tennis, I don't know that Dave Feldman would have been able to do the same job. But he's talking about bare knuckle fighting. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's crushing it, and it's no surprise to me how fast and how quickly the sport is growing and just becoming, you know, average, everyday average people see me on the street and recognize me for my bare knuckle fights, almost more so now than the UFC. I mean, it's, it's unheard of. It's crazy. When you, you are a business owner owning a few businesses and you said you weren't, you were kind of pushed into fighting due to COVID and whatever, you can't operate your business. You know, you obviously from even a few months ago, you look much more chiseled down. Can you talk about how into it you are now that it has to become your full-time gig? Yeah, it wasn't so much of a push as much as it was just all I had left. Like I said, I mean, what else did I have to do? You know, it was, we were on lockdown, but all my places that I work were shut down. Um, you know, I couldn't stay here with my wife all day. I'd drive her crazy, you know? So, you know, I had a couple of buddies and, or my buddy Josh, and that's what we did. All the other gyms, his gyms were shut down, you know, but I own a gym. So it's not like, you know, I can go in there and train. So, you know, me and him went in there every day, two or three hours a day. And, and that's just what we did the whole time. You know, um, after my fight with Bubba, I had my surgery and, um, you know, my surgery was over with. Um, when I got cleared from that, I immediately started training for a fight, thinking I was going to fight like in February. And, uh, and then February didn't happen. And then it was supposed to be uh, May, I think, or April. I don't know. It was like every month I was supposed to fight, but the Rona kept pushing the fights off. So, I mean, I stayed in training camp mode for like eight months, you know. So, it was like a phoenix rising from the ashes, I guess. You know, it kind of gave me the opportunity to, to just focus on, on what I needed to do to be a fighter. Chris, you had mentioned, obviously, getting recognized for BKFC now. And what's blown my mind is how now not just the normal person knows about it, but celebrities are becoming aware of it. People like Shaq, which I think is fucking awesome. Have you gotten celebrity reach outs or are there any celebrities that are going to be at Knuckle Mania that you know of or people you would want there that would fucking excite you? I'm always surprised at who shows up. You know, like you said, you know, Shaq, Shaq was at the last one. To, <laughs> um, but no, man, I, I have no clue. I live in my own little bubble, you know, especially in training camp. Um, I'm not going out. I live in San Diego, not L.A., so not really seeing celebrities every day, but uh, I'm sure I'll see some uh, come February. We obviously, Chris, caught you in the middle of training right now, which is, I think, the coolest thing ever. Like, we're in the gym with you. What's your training regimen like? How are you getting ready for this fight? You know, I've been running a lot, running to get my weight down, uh, keep my cardio up, and then lots of pads, you know, uh, a lot of technical sparring, you know, hard, hard sparring, you know, not as many hard rounds as I'm used to, you know, I, I feel like I kind of already know I'm pretty tough. You know what I mean? I know I can take a shot. So really just been working on some of the skills, some of the things I think in my last fight, I could have done better, you know, you know, what needs improvement, you know, what, what I can work on. And then, uh, and then those hard sparring days, you know, setting those up and using those really as a measuring stick. And that, that's what we've been doing, you know, and then also, you know, being that I'm so old, you know, I don't want to get hurt. You know what I mean? And <laughs> so, you know, it's been good, but, but, but yeah, I've actually never sparred better 
you know, that, that, than I than I have been lately. I've been been beating up all the twenty year olds here in the gym. So fuck, man, can't complain. Yeah, QT, how about you? Basically the same. Uh, I don't I don't do a tremendous amount of running, you know, but uh, I get a lot of cardio in. I get a lot of rounds in. I don't I don't do a whole lot of hard sparring either. Most of my stuff's just all technical sparring, uh, you know. But I mean, it's 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 bare knuckle boxing. You know what I mean? It's not. You know, in MMA, you you might go train with twenty different people or five different disciplines. You know, but we're boxing. You know what I mean? It's a it's a straight up you know boxing camp like you typically got. We had Paige Van Zant on the show a couple weeks ago, and the fact that she is headlining this against Britton Hart, and to see how women's MMA and women's combat sports has evolved, Chris, you've been able to see it firsthand because of how long you've been in the sport. Is it pretty incredible to see what's happened on the women's side? Yeah, it's pretty incredible, man. You know, um, honestly, when when women were first first allowed in the UFC, I was like, it'll never get big. Instantly, it was big, you know. And now we've got we've got Paige in BKFC, you know, and and it's huge. Everybody's talking about it. It's the fight everybody wants to see. You know what? I'm a little bit jealous. I'm like, hey, what? I've been fucking fighting my whole life. I don't have 2.6 million fucking followers, you know. This chick hasn't even fought yet in BKFC. She's already got a million people talking about her match, you know? So a little bit jealous, but uh, no, honestly, uh, I, I'm excited. I'll be watching it as well. What kind of impact did that make when she signed on? It was like everywhere, but from your perspective, what kind of impact did that make for BKFC? You know, a lot of people were asking me about it that don't normally ask me about combat sports. It, it brought a lot of different eyes to the sport. And I think, I think for that, it's great for that. It's great. People that, that are just blown away that here's this, you know, attractive girl that's going to go fight bare knuckle, you know, all, you know, from my mom all the way up to, you know, real combat sports fans that know that she can fight and that she's tough that are excited to see what's going to happen with this matchup, you know? So it just, it brought a lot of eyes to the sport and, and, and that's, that's great for us. Chris, you've been doing this for 18 years, but QT, it's, it's a little different for you. You know, you mentioned your significant other earlier. Did you initially get any pushback like, hey, why are you going in there and literally risking your life in the ring? I think that's maybe a little over-exaggeration. Ain't nobody dying in there. But, you know, she when we met, I was already a pro fighter. So she's used to me going there and fighting. And no, I mean, yeah, it does scare her pretty bad, you know, compared to uh, the MMA, but, you know, she understands that, you know, as far as CTE and stuff, it's probably less, you know, it's less likely in a bare knuckle match and stuff. So, but she knows how hard I train and all. So, you know, I'm, you know, they, uh, they, they marry into the life. Quentin, obviously Chris has been doing this forever. And it was funny because when I talked about him body bagging you, you actually responded how cool it was, but you've got to just be fucking angry in this situation. Right. So where, where does that anger come from? Like, do you already visualize what you're going to do to him and how you're going to hurt him? I don't have anger when I fight. That's the thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, you have aggression, you're, you're trying to fight, but it's not, you don't want to hurt anybody. You know what I mean? You don't want, I don't want him to not be able to referee or get to hang out with his kids and shit the rest of his life. You know, I think a lot of people try to blow this up more than what it is. You know, this is two grown men who want to have a good time and put on a show for people. Um, you know, uh, I thought it was just awesome because Chris Lieben was talking shit about me. You know, like I've been, uh, you know, when I was a kid, he was on the Ultimate Fighter and I was watching him and I was a huge fan of his on there, you know, and uh, 
it, it was just more surreal than anything. So, you know, there's, there's no anger. If anything, it's more just getting me fired up. You know what I mean? It just, he's coming, I'm coming. That, that just means things about to go down. How about you, Chris? Do you visualize, like, are you a manifester in terms of saying, I'm going to crush this guy and here's how I'm going to do it. And you're seeing it. You're foreshadowing the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I visualize the fight, you know, um, I kind of have a little ritual that I do, you know, when I go home, I, uh, I visualize the fight three times, you know, a quick knockout, you know, a, a bloodbath, you know, where ultimately I finish with the, with the knockout and then, and then a three, and then a five round war, you know, where, where I win a decision that way I can put it, put it away, you know, and then I, and then I spend time with my family because, you know, really there's, these are very different hats, you know, Come February 5th, we're both going in there to do battle. But just like him, I have a family that I have to go home to. So I don't get to walk around with this fucking tough guy, you know, attitude all the time. If I did, I'd end up in jail, you know. So I channel it when I'm at the gym. I train hard. I visualize. And then I put it away. I want to ask you both. First, I'm going to start with you, Chris. What's the hardest you've ever been hit? You know, fucking Dakota Cochran hit pretty hard, man. I was blown away how hard that guy hit. He hit me with, in the beginning and it just shattered my cheekbone, you know. And I was like, dang, that kid fucking, he's throwing his ass into those punches. But yeah, I've been hit by, you know, for, for single one punch, probably him, maybe Terry Martin. Really, for me, I don't usually get knocked out by one shot, you know. Guys that follow up well, guys with, with a lot of hand speed, you know. They're going to land 10, 12 shots, you know, those, those seem to, you know, be, be a little bit rougher. How about you, Quentin? What's the hardest you've been hit? I mean, shit, wouldn't know, y'all wouldn't know anybody that's hit me. That's cool. Uh, I mean, Bubba hit me pretty good. You know, I've had, uh, I've had some different fights where I've, I've caught some pretty good shots, you know, in MMA and stuff in the past, um, you know, but uh, yeah, nobody, Nobody cool like him. I get hit in the gym pretty hard. My boxing coach, when I was 18, that's probably the hardest hit that I can remember uh, jabbing me in the face. So I want to ask you both, for those who aren't familiar with BKFC, and hopefully many more are going to become familiar with the, the organization and the sport, if you were to sum up what people are going to get, Chris, sum that up for me. What's the experience of watching a BKFC fight? It's action-packed. There's not a dull moment, you know, um, the fights are quick, they're 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 aggressive, they're intense, and you know you just you gotta you gotta keep you keep your eyes wide open because you never you never know when somebody's gonna hit the canvas. When you hear Quentin talking about how much he reveres you, and you do have kind of this legendary iconic status in the MMA world, is that an advantage for you? Do you look at that and you're like, I'm gonna kill this kid because he's looking up to me and I've already won half the battle? I don't think so, man. I never rest on my laurels. You know, you're only as good as your last fight. And this being my last fight, um, I'm going to want to rest on this one for a while. So I'm putting every ounce of work I possibly can into making sure that, that, that I get the W, you know? Absolutely. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I was if I, if I depended on, on a reputation. You know what I mean? That's, 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 not, that's not how it works, you know? Because every time you get in that ring or you get in that cage... You have, you have to redefine yourself every single time. Quentin, I'm going to flip the question to you. You're obviously shown an incredible amount of respect for Chris. Is that a mistake? Because I always think to myself, it's like when Kobe Bryant was going at Michael Jordan. He's like, I know you're Michael Jordan, 
but I'm still better than you. That's the mindset. Is it a mistake for you, do you think, to kind of have this idolized version of him? Or should you be like, I'm going to win this hands down? I can respect what he's done in the sport and who he is as a person and still not, you know, feel like, you know, he's somebody who I can't beat. You know what I mean? Like you said, you know, a lot of what Chris has done and why people like him is because he is a, he's a real dude when he comes and he does things, you know, when he talks and you were able to relate to him from the very beginning, you know, so – I look at it more as getting to fight somebody I kind of know that I've, uh, you know, it'll be like, you know, getting to go at it with somebody who I know is like a game opponent for once. I've never in my career really had, um, I guess, uh, an opponent that I could say, you know, I fought Chris Lieben or I fought this guy or I got to do that, you know, because I've had, I've had some of my fights in the past that have been, you know, quick or, you know, really good. And, and then you always get those guys that are like, Oh, well, yeah, but that guy's record was this, you know, but they don't take into account that that was my fourth opponent that had backed out of the fight. And that guy showed up, you know, the week of, but yeah, getting to, to be in the, it makes you feel like you're part of the group, you know? So it's, it's part of the, you either got to eat or get off the porch, you know? So it's time to eat. Chris, you're obviously, as you'd mentioned your last fight, you're at the end of a, a pretty incredible career. Hopefully, Quinton's at the beginning of a pretty incredible career. If you were to give him advice on what he needs to do to be a successful fighter, what's that advice? Keep your nose to the grindstone, man. You know, that's what it is. Don't don't get sucked into all the hype. You know, there's a, there'll be, you know, you keep winning and people are going to people are going to want to hang out. They're going to want to have a good time, but they're, they're only there for the good. There's only fair weather friends, you know, just right. keep grinding, keep your ass in the gym. Take care of your family. Watch your money, you know, and you'll and you'll do good. Before we let you go, I want to get a prediction from each of you. Give me a final prediction. What's happening, Chris? Fight's going to start quick. I always, I plan for the worst and hope for the best. So I'm planning for a five-round war, but I'm hoping for a first-round knockout. How about you, Quentin? What's your prediction? I know what's going to happen is we're going to get out there and it's going to get started. And it's going to look like one of them dust bunnies from the Tasmanian Devil cartoons, you know. So uh, there, hell, there ain't no telling what's going to happen, you know. It just, it just, I'm excited, you know. We're just going to have fun. I can promise everybody's going to like it, you know, one way or another. So, you know, we're we're coming to fight. We're not coming to to win or be safe and this and that. You know, we're coming out there. You know, that's the thing. This is his last fight. I wanted to make a good one. You know, it would be disrespectful to go out there and and, and half-ass it. You know, like. He wants to go out there and fight somebody who's at the top of their game. So I'm bringing it. February 5th. Let's go, guys. Thank you for joining so much. We're looking forward to this fight and good luck to both of you. All right, folks. I don't know if that doesn't get you hyped to want to see Knuckle Mania and watch these two dudes get in the ring and just pound each other. I don't know what will. And again, Matt, we can't overstate this. And Chris really dug into this. The brand notoriety that someone like Paige Van Zandt brings to an up-and-coming organization like this cannot be overstated. Chris has been in the game for, what do you say, like two decades. And he was even in awe of how much people are now recognizing him because Paige Van Zandt signed on with BKFC 
there's no telling where this league is going to go. I think they're just on the way up in, an, in a meteoric rise sort of fashion. Yeah, there really is no ceiling. And obviously signing someone as you know high profile as Paige is kind of the clout that the company needs to really solidify themselves as a, as a power player in this space. And you know, just talking to Lieben and Henry, it, it was amazing because I, I watched clips of Quentin Henry on YouTube and he is like, a, a savage in the ring he's like flexing he's like throwing shit on the ground and to talk to him here he's like the most subdued guy ever like I was like I don't know why this guy got into fighting because he seems like he should be at like a like a Damian Marley concert or something you know Lieben obviously is a <laughs> is a horse of a different color there you know he's as intense as they get yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a bloodbath between these two, and I cannot wait for Paige and Britain. And again, guys, pay-per-view or fight TV. Matt, our next guest, no slouch. We'd mentioned him at the top of the program, but man, three Super Bowl rings, greatest safety in Cowboys history. By the way, as a Giants fan, as a lifelong Giants fan, this is paining me to introduce this guy right now. But that being said, Darren Woodson was electric in this interview. We had so much fun with him between him talking about Texas football, what it's like to be a cowboy when you're doing well versus when you're not doing so well, his transitioning into broadcast and real estate and just all the great stories, man. You can't help but love this guy. I, as a cowboy hater, I do love Darren Woodson. I can distinguish between the two, right, Matt? You can, you know, it takes a man to do that. So Arthur, good for you. But this might be a hot take. I know we mentioned Shaq at the top of the podcast, but um, he's, he reminded me of a lit, like a mini Shaq kind of, he obviously three times Super Bowl champion, Cowboys ring of honor. Um, You know, he's got the pedigree on the field speaks for itself, but you know, the way he's kind of morphed into an, you know, obviously a football analyst and that entrepreneurial mind, entrepreneurial spirit, in different aspects of life. You know, he started, he's in real estate. He's obviously in broadcasting. He started uh, an online marketplace for like group events and activities. And so this guy is just a jack of all trades. And he's like, he has that charisma that you can't really teach. I also loved just hearing his appreciation of the greats. I grew up in a different era than the kids of today, you know, the TikTok kids. So the guys I grew up with, Jerry Jones, Jerry Rice, Brett Favre, there wasn't the social media age back then to give you the exposure into the internal workings and the minds of these people. So I'm always a huge fan of when we get an unfiltered guy like Darren Woodson giving us the inside stories and the inside takes on what these people are like. Also, obviously, Tom Brady is playing in his next Super Bowl. I'm I don't even want to list how many at this point. I'm just going to say next because my feeling is there's probably five more ahead of him, but in his next Super Bowl, he's an anomaly and there's always a moment, Matt, in every athlete's career that they know it's over. They've either lost a step or their arm can't throw the way it used to or the concussions have gotten the best of them, whatever it is, right? To hear Darren Woodson, a legendary all-time great and potential Hall of Fame player literally tell us what that moment was for him was so illuminating because you think to yourself, when do other athletes know that moment is happening? Does a Tom Brady, for instance, who thinks he's going to play until he's 88, 
know if that moment is happening or are they in denial? So I, I really thought Darren gave us a lot of insight into a player's career on and off the field and also what it's like being part of a dynasty at its peak versus what it's like being part of a dynasty after its peak. And I thought that was really cool. Truth, Arthur, truth. All right, without further ado, here is three-time Super Bowl champion, Darren Woodson. All right, we are overjoyed to welcome on the Endless Hustle podcast today, three-time Super Bowl champion, four-time All-Pro, Cowboys Ring of Honor inductee, 14-year ESPN analyst, and host of the Darren Woodson Show podcast, Mr. Darren Woodson. Thank you for joining Matt, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, that is a long resume introduction, so we're happy to have you here. Yeah, you know what? I always feel like sort of weird about hearing my bio. Like when people read my bio, it just feels awkward because half that, half of it was, you know, hey, listen, I'll, I'll take, I love it so at times. Like, yeah, we dug, accomplished this, but I didn't do any of that by myself. Like any, none of that. It was, there were so many people involved in my life through that process that, encouraged me got my ass up in the morning and you know held me responsible and accountable for things so you know I, I hear all that and I'm like man that, that's all great but dude I, I just so many other people that are involved that's a good perspective but you got to wear that like a badge of honor there you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're so much better than me I would literally have one of my Super Bowl rings as an earring <laughs> Actually, probably both have one like as an eye ring. Like, I, I think no, I, I did it all. I did it all. <laughs> oh, all right, Darren, we're going to get to your career, your post career. But, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you a quick congratulations for your Dallas Cowboys winning the 2020 attendance record this season. You know, an honor Jerry Jones seems to be very proud of. How does this honor compare to your three Super Bowl, t- Super Bowl titles? And are you going to be part of that parade? No, shit. No. I was watching this, the Steelers game, and there was no one in the stands. And, and you know, like on a pre-COVID, you know, we, we, we watched fans throughout. And, and I've always, again, 13 years with the Dallas Cowboys, and that's all great. But I remember going to Philadelphia, going to Pittsburgh, playing in Kansas City, and watching those fans that are like rabbit fans. And this, this is not corporate fans. We got a lot of – there's a lot of corporate seats here in Dallas that they sell. And you know how that looks. That's that's usually scattered around with some Green Bay Packer fans who bought some corporate seatings and, and, or seats or whatnot, and they're not cheering. No, they're, 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 those corporate fans aren't cheering. You go to Kansas City, go to Philly, they're thugs, man. I mean, those are real fans. They will fight you. And, and that's the ones that I love, man. I like when you have those type of fans that, that are out there. I'm originally from Philly, Darren, so I know how much you guys are absolutely hated there. Mm-hmm. What's your worst Philadelphia fan experience story? In my rookie year, and we had heard the stories that the year before they had played in Philly at the end of the season. And you know how that works. At the end of the season, you're not sure what kind of what the weather's going to be like. And evidently it snowed. They had these snowballs. They had these batteries inside the snowball. And when the players, when the Cowboys ran out, they were getting pelted by these snowballs and they were getting hit on the helmet. And the, and the security guy, thank God the security guy back then was telling the players, hey, put your helmet on because they're going to be pelting you. So they put, they put the helmet on. And Jimmy Johnson runs out, who's a head coach, no helmet, no nothing to protect him, gets hit on the head, battery, the whole lot. So I hear that story and I'm going into my rookie year like, man, this is, 
And that's, that's a little crazy, but, but you still don't know what to expect. You still don't know what the expectation was. Now we ran out there coming out of that tunnel and they didn't have the snowballs that year, but they threw drinks. You know, I'm from the inner city. I've never heard my mama get called as many names as she got called. They talked about my mom, uh, my, my girlfriend, everybody. They went, there was nothing off limits with Philly fans. The real question is that Jimmy Johnson's hair deflect the battery. Like, like it's like a superhero move. Like, boop. It probably did. Probably didn't mess up one hair. <laughs> what, a, what an icon. All right, Darren, not to be a kiss ass here, but you know, you're the epitome of post-career success story, you know, starting the branding company, commercial real estate, make a wish board member on top of being a sports media personality. Did you envision this for yourself way back when you were, I think you had to walk on to Arizona State because your grades weren't solid enough for a scholarship? Uh, no, I, I did not. I, I didn't have the vision of what I would be doing. Look, when I came up, I was an inner city kid and uh, we didn't have any heroes or professionals that were coming back uh, and, and mentoring us. And it, it wasn't until, you know, I went to Arizona State and I wasn't a walk-on. I was considered what they call a Prop 48. My grades weren't good enough, and I didn't do well enough on the SAT test to get into school. So I had to sit out my first year. Uh, and it was in that process where I was humble. I was really deflated, like emotionally. You know, I've been the star player on most of those teams, like Pop Warner and in high school. You know, you just always feel like you're invincible. And, and it was a humbling experience when they said, hey, you can't play. And they sat me down that first year. And there was a young man. I grew up in a, in a single parent household. My mother raised myself and I had three bro uh, two brothers and a sister. So she raised us. And I never had that father figure in my life. And it wasn't until I got to Arizona State and met Lovey Smith, who is currently the coach in, uh, at University of Illinois, coach, which coached Chicago Bears and at Tampa as well. But he was my position coach. And he taught me how to be a man. And taught me how to dream and, and look to the future because I was shallow, man. I'll be honest with you. I, I was just about, hey, today, how do I overcome the moment today? I didn't look at, you know, what I could reach, the goals that I could person, personally reach. I just looked at how do I overcome the day? And he gave me the vision of how to plan, how to be on time, you know, how to inspire others and be a leader and all. So I got that from, from Lovey Smith. And that's when I started to think more so of what life looks like outside of football. And it took me, you know, three and a half years, graduated out of Arizona State quickly and then went on to the, to the Dallas Cowboys. And we all know here in Dallas, it's about business, man. It's pro-business here in Texas, period. But Jerry Jones, the Jones family, whether it be Steven, Charlotte, their hands are all in the business. And they, they inspire you and they make you think about life outside of football. And I think that's where I got the inspiration of how do I get, you know, join the real, my real estate team? I'm a partner in a real estate team. I own a uh, software company called Counterfine. We eliminate counterfeit merchandise on social media platforms. That, that vision of mine started way back with the Joneses. Looking back at those Super Bowl teams, Darren, I can't think, I mean, I'm going to be 43 in May. So I watched you guys in the prime of what you were doing. I can't think of a team that had more alphas on okay. one squad than, and personalities and partiers and you name it how the fuck did you guys maintain like any type of semblance to win with those personalities all in one team you know what i tell arthur I always say look if there was social media back then 
there's no way we fill the team. Yeah, we would have incriminated ourselves day in and day out. Look, I, I just think, you know, the one thing that's the, that, that really kept us together was Jimmy Johnson. And I give Jimmy a lot of credit because he went out and drafted and brought in players that had that alpha dog mentality and figured, look, I'll bring them in. They're probably going to be loose cannons and, and, and run wild, but I'll be the one that can control us, control them. And he did a great job of that. You know, when you have the guys like Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith and, you know, you know, big personalities like Nate Newton and Charles Haley. I mean, there's so many guys and I'm just naming a few. There were a lot more that were uh, more flamboyant than those guys. Those are the big name guys. But, you know, we had special teamers driving around Porsches and staying out all night and chasing all day. And and I'm not going to say that I wasn't there myself. I'm going to incriminate myself, but I, I wasn't any better than any of those because I was a, I was an alpha dog as well. So it was a loose outfit, but Jimmy just had a pulse on the team. And he ran that team in a hard way, man. It was, you messed up, you got out of line, you were late for meetings, you got cut. That was a part of me that felt like, hey, as long as I understand the rules, and, and most of those guys understood the rules, these are the rules. This is what's in place. The goal is to win a championship, but you got to follow A, B, and C, and D. And we fell in line, and that's how we got to the point where we were and, and started winning championships. If you had to choose one guy in that locker room who was King Alpha, just one, obviously you had Emmett, Irvin, Dion, you, Charles Haley, Nate Newton, you mentioned all of them. But if, was there one guy, if he spoke, like everyone just kind of fell in line? I wouldn't say there was one guy in particular I you know look you always see guys on tv and when I came in as I was a young baby when I came I was 21 years old so I come in on this team and I heard of Michael Irvin I knew who he was I knew who Troy Aikman was I knew who Emmett Smith was I knew all these guys that were the name guys uh but it wasn't until because when you get drafted you come in, in in the month of April you have the, what we call these mini camps. In May, you have these mini camps where all the guys come back and you practice here and there. And then you go off to training camp. And training camp back then was six weeks, six to eight weeks. And we was, used to go to Austin, Texas, and practice there. And we were around each other every single day for camp for you know six to eight weeks, whatever it was. And it was there when I started to figure out, like, there were two guys that didn't talk a whole lot. But when they did speak, everyone sat up in their chair and listened. And those two guys, one was a guy named Tony Tolbert. He was a defensive end for the Cowboys. Unassuming guy, played a lot of downs, never missed a game for like 10 years. Just phenomenal work, work ethic, just did everything. Did all the things. He was a true professional on the defensive side of the ball. And I saw him when he spoke. I was like, okay, there's, that's different. Mm-hmm. Even the, even the al- other alphas are listening to him. And on the other side was, was Daryl Johnston, called him Moose. And he was the fullback lead blocker for, for uh, Emmett Smith all those years. And when Daryl spoke on that offensive side and on the special team side, you listened. And, and those are the two guys that, you know, didn't get a lot of the hoorah, didn't make all the Pro Bowls and, and you know, weren't doing commercials. But in that locker room, they were – they, they had a huge voice and a huge presence. So I would say those two guys, if, I, if, we, if we were talking in that way, if we were talking about the two alphas, yes. 
That's that's interesting. I, I listened to your uh, your podcast with Michael Irvin, and you uh, and off the bat, I was like keeling over laughing. You bring up the story of Irvin just walking in butt ass naked <laughs> to all the the new guys on the team, and I dude, that was so, so funny. He and Irvin said that he used to do that like unconventional icebreakers like often. Are there any other things that you can share? Because you know any Irvin content is good content. There there's so many. With, with Mike, I mean, there's so look. I I can remember like in practice. Practice was as hard as the games were. Honestly, they were so hard, and it was so hard in practice because it was so competitive. And Jimmy made it competitive in practice. So I can tell you one time. I, I remember my rookie year during training camp, and we would go head to head one on one. We had to cover the wide defensive backs had to cover the wide receivers and back and forth. And if Michael Irvin ever beat you, he was, and there was always a crowd at. At, at our camp. So you might have 4,000, 5,000 people at camp watching you during practice. And Mike was as great as a showman that you, you ever could meet. So he would line up and he would get the crowd going and he'd run his route. And if he caught the ball, he's going to spike it, do his little dance or whatnot. And, you know, he just, so you never wanted to get beat by Mike, nor did you really want to get li- line up with him because you knew there was a potential you were going to get beat because he normally beat everybody. Right. So I remember lining up with him and he runs this double move and beats me for a touchdown or whatnot. And we're walking back to the huddle. And he, you know, of course he has to do his dance after he, you know, he scores a touchdown and talk shit and whatever it is, but we're walking back to the huddle. And this speaks to, to who Michael Irvin was. He's walking back and he says, Hey man, look, I was watching you do it in a route and through that route, I was leaning one way and your body shifted the other way. And I went the opposite direction. And I, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's coaching me up on what I did wrong. And he says, you know what? I got to be hard on you because Jerry Rice is going to be hard on you because Chris Carter is going to be hard on you. So I remember that, man. I was like, man, that that's a leader, man. That's a leader. That's I mean, he's not. Yeah, he's, he's going to talk shit and all that. But he wants to sharpen you. We always had that saying, iron sharpens iron. And he wanted the best out of me to push him and and the rest of the guys. So I would say that part of it, man, goes under the radar. You don't hear about that. All you hear is about Michael Irvin always talking shit. But, man, he he did a hell of a job of, you know, lifting up, you know, young players like myself. And you said he was, like, one of the hardest workers that oh, you've ever come in contact with. Unbelievable yeah. work ethic, man. And, I, and it applies to – and he wasn't the only one, but he would come in early in the morning – and he was true, true to his nature. Early in the morning, stay late, work out all day, get all back on the field. And it applies today. You know, it, it absolutely applies today. Like I, I wake up early, I'm a 5.30 a.m. dude, and I'm going to work my ass off because that's all I know what to do. I wanted to uh, ask you about football in Texas. There's a great scene in Friday Night Lights where kids are stealing cop cars and they're getting away with it. And you're like, man, everything is better in Texas when you play football. What was it like when you guys were getting in trouble and the Cowboys were on top of the world? How much were you able to kind of just conceal and kind of cover up? And how much were you able to get away with? We got away with a lot. And, 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 and winning allows you to do that. I mean, that's the, no, that was the luxury of winning back then. But, you know, and it changed, honestly. You know, look, it, it changed as well. Because art at the same time, like when we were winning, oh, we didn't pay for dinner, didn't pay for drinks. Everything was wide open for us. He got pulled over. It was usually a pat on the back. 
you know, win this, hope you win this Sunday. And that was great. But then when we started losing, when the, when all the glory fell off of us and we started going five and 11, trust me, guys started going to jail. And that's, <laughs> that's how shit works, brother. <laughs> when you're on top, you're on top. But when you're on the bottom, your ass is going to jail. Dude, the cop stops you and you're like, I'm out of this ticket, right? And he's like, no, nah, I'm giving you double. You're five and 11. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they must be after the current Cowboys now. They must be just looking with their speed guns, like on the side of the road, just like, come on, Dak, come down. But hey, I'll tell you what, Zeke, Zeke is always in trouble. There was a time when Zeke, every week, uh, you know, Ezekiel Elliott was either in jail or getting accused of something. That was because yeah. you're not winning championships. Yeah. Sir, you were going 70 and a 65. <laughs> They're doing FBI style raids of Zeke's house as we speak right now. Darren, there are very few players in NFL history who've come in and had kind of the individual and team success that you have. Win a Super Bowl rookie year, two more in the next three. What was your mindset like the second half of your career when it wasn't as fruitful from a team standpoint? Were you like, I got three rings, everything else is kind no. of gravy? Or were you like, I've felt that top of the mountain and anything less is kind of a fail? You know what? I would say I was pissed in the back end of my career. Up until the Bill Parcells came in, I went from a mindset of it's either championship or bust. I mean, anything less than a championship was a failure. I don't care if we got to the NFC championship game. That's a failure of a season because we didn't win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And back-to-back champions – of course, in 92, 93, then we fell off and lost the NFC Championship in 94 and then won, won it again in 95. But then there became this time and this shift where Jimmy, had, they had let Jimmy go in 93 and 94 after winning. Like, first of all, who in the hell wins a championship and gets fired? How the hell does that happen? I mean, that's, un, that's like Bill Belichick winning championship after championship with, with uh, the Kraft family. And then all of a sudden they say, you know what? You've won three straight championships. It's time for you to go. That's unheard of, man. So, uh, you know, Jimmy's gone, and then things started to fall apart. And I'm not blaming it so much on a coaching staff. It was just an organizational problem because here now you have all these alpha dogs, and they're out of control, totally out of control. You're you're not monitoring your own personnel that's in-house. You're not seeing them. You're not taking care of them. And then your draft, the drafts became terrible. And then guys started becoming, you know, staying, you know, out late, not coming in early in the morning. Uh, No one was holding them accountable. So it just became a recipe for disaster. And we fell off the cliff. And I would say after that 96, 97 year, somewhere in there, man, we went like, there were three years, we went five and 11. And that is demoralizing when you're built a certain way, my mindset was show up early. I, all the way I knew how to win was show up early, stay late and hold each other accountable. But well, you had guys that came in that weren't built that way. We weren't drafting those players anymore. And that was a lot of work because the work came in for now. I wasn't just working for myself and holding myself accountable. I had to hold 10, 15 guys accountable. And that takes away from the joy of the game of every day of, of, working to sharpen your own skill set. But then also on Sunday, when you know that, that the weakest link, they're going to go at. And the same weak link missed four meetings this, that week and wasn't held accountable. That same weak link couldn't tell you how to run a true cover two or cover three because 
They were sleeping during the meeting. And then they found, and then Brett, you go see Brett Favre, and he says, you know what? Found your weakest link. And they go at him. And that was demoralizing, man. That was really hard to, to overcome because we fell off and the organization in itself. And uh, listen, let's be honest. This organization has not been to the mountaintop in 26 years now, 26, 27 years. Yep. And it's been a long time and they, because they haven't held each other accountable. As Darren, I'm so glad you said that because as a Patriots fan myself, like once I, once I got those six titles watching football, watching the Patriots this season, I'm like, is this how every other fan base like watches? Like, is it like football isn't fun anymore? And I'm like, once I sniffed that success, obviously from a fan's perspective here, but once I sniffed that success, it was like, oh, now this is how the mediocre teams play. And it's like, no, I want. Hey, Matt, nobody, hey, Matt, nobody gets a big shit about you guys in the Patriots. Everybody's tired. Don't, don't, don't Thank you. blow that smoke. I mean, Thank bullshit. You, so you won much. six championships. You had the best organization. Wait, I mean, can you, you say that best. again? We won how many? I don't know. Six. How many did you win? I don't care, Matt. Give a shit. But no one feels sorry for you. I don't feel sorry for you. Look, you know, welcome. Welcome back to the mediocrity of 95% of the league. It, it, feel, it should feel good to you. I thought you were an empathetic dude. You know, no. you should feel my struggle. <laughs> we're going to go through another, what, 20 years of not, not winning. You know, you could yeah. at least give me a little pat on the back. <laughs> dude, it's like you slept with a Victoria's Secret angel. Nothing else matters <laughs> afterwards. You could literally be in like the boonies of Iowa and it doesn't matter. You had your great experience yeah, in life. Yeah. <laughs> now my bed is cold and alone, you know. Darren, we had Ike Taylor on the show and he talked uh, in real great detail about Antonio Brown and he considers both him and Troy Palomalo considered one of their greatest failures of their career that they weren't able to help Antonio early in his career kind of get his head on straight. Now you're obviously seeing Antonio Brown became the train wreck he became, although the goat kind of salvaged him a little bit, but regardless, was there a guy during your career who you wish you could have put your arm around that if you did, their career would have gone in a different direction versus the direction it might have gone in? Yes. Yes. There are actually two, but uh, one in particular. His name was Kareem Larimore. And you wouldn't know who he was. And only played for about a year and a half. But had this – and I couldn't tell you where Kareem Larimore is today. I honestly couldn't. But had this tremendous skill set. Just – I mean, this kid could have played 14, 15 years and been, you know – just special because of his skill set but the mental side of him he just kept getting in his way he just couldn't show up on time like the, the smallest things couldn't show up on time had zero discipline in his pursuit and, and didn't dream big just didn't you know he was a, a, a kid from watts california and he just he lived that way like every day of his life was like it was felt like it was he was still there in watts living in this, you know, small, shallow mindset. And I tried my damnedest to get him out of that. You know, I went from everything. Hey, positive reinforcement. All right, that didn't work. Uh, negative reinforcement. Oh, that didn't work. Trying to put a chip on his shoulder. That shit, nothing worked. I mean, it, it was, and it was a shame because I, you know, you put, you walk him out to the field and he was better than everyone. Like skill set wise, he his feet, his hands, he did everything the right way. I mean, I I played with the best in Deion Sanders as a defensive back, and I'm not saying he had Deion Sanders skill set, 
but he was a guy that could have played a long time, took care of his family, you know, made a lot of money and whatnot, but he just that. So he was one. And then another guy named Antonio, uh, no, I can't remember his name now. Goodness Lord. There's, there's another one, but, but I, I would say, I would say Kareem Larimore was the guy that by far fit that same mold as uh, as an AB. I'm literally on Kareem's Instagram right now trying to figure out what he does for a living. <laughs> I'm wow. like, I'm stalking the guy as we speak. <laughs> I need to get on and see where he is today, man. Honestly. He's actually in great shape. He's putting up workout videos. He's like, I think he's a fitness influencer or something. I can't figure oh, it out. Let's, let's bring him back on the Patriots. Let's do it. <laughs> Patriots 2.0. <laughs> hey, what'd you think, Darren? Because, you know, you're you're 51. I'm going to be 43. We look young. We're handsome boys. When they put up the uh, Tom Brady, George Blanda image, how great was that to see what players look like in the 70s? That- oh, man. Oh, bro. I just saw it the other day. And I just... Like they were smoking. George Blander was smoking before the game, bro. I mean, he was <laughs> he was built he was built differently. And, and you know what though? But that's what it was. That's what it was like before those games in the seventies. Man, they were you know smoking cigarettes, shooting up before the game. Brought their own little medicine kits. I mean, it was the liver couldn't have survived half of that of what they were going through. But that's you know that that was the makeup back then. And even when you look at like I look at videos of Jack Lambert back in the day and that steel curtain and, and watching those guys and, I, and they take off their helmet. And you're like, goodness Lord, is he 185? I mean, that's just the way they looked. Yeah, I feel like someone had a great tweet about it. They said, put Brady, put Brady and Blanda in the cage match and see who survives. <laughs> you mentioned Dion, and I want to talk about how kind of he relates to you because he, he recently said that every, they're letting every Tom, Dick and Jerry in the hall of fame, and it should be designated for only players who help change the game. I think this bodes well for you because you were one of the most versatile players in history, 1,300 tackles as a safety, and you, you know, garden players in the slot like Jerry Rice and Chris Carter. You've been a semifinalist, what, five times since you've been eligible. How did Dion's comment strike you, and what would a Hall of Fame induction mean to you? I've always looked at the Hall of Fame as, like, that's the icing on the cake. And you don't play that game if you got any dog in you. You ain't playing that game just to play the game. You know, my mindset was play the game to win as many championships as you personally can, get all the accolades you can personally get. But at the end, you know, I want to be recognized as one of the greatest to play that those that position. So uh, does it bother me that I'm not in? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'd be lying to you if I said it didn't bother me, uh, not being recognized as such. For Dion, I don't know. I, I haven't heard those comments from him. But, you know, look, I mean, that's Dion's going to speak his mind. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have a zero problem. I don't know where it starts or where that, that conversation ends. But, you know, for me, hell yeah. You know, I feel like I've been overlooked for a long, long time because of the versatility that I had. And it's not being recognized. Look, I always felt like I'm a safety that could have played in any generation. Because I could have done stop the run. I could have covered the slot receiver. I could cover outside receivers. I could do whatever it took. And, and uh, there's not a lot of safeties that could do that. Randy Moss was recently on Terrell Owens' podcast. And T.O. said that Randy's the GOAT. Actually, Randy might have called himself the GOAT. Yeah. He said T.O. was number two and Rice was number three. Blew my mind. Mm. What are your thoughts? Have you looked at Jerry Rice's stats? I don't even know how you argue that. I, I mean, honestly, Jerry has his own category. Like he's 
off to the side. That's almost like, you know, people talk about Michael Jordan. Yeah, Michael Jordan has his own category. Now let's figure out the rest and how they all rank. Jerry may be the greatest football player ever, like ever. Not just quarterback, football player. He may, that's how, how special his body of work was and the length of time. I mean, he's in his 16th, 17th year going to the Pro Bowls. That's Jerry Rice. So, you know, I've played against all three. Randy Moss changed the game as far as covering him, as far as going up. Now you see the big receivers, the, the, the Hopkins and the A.J. Greens and the Julio Jones. That's all Randy Moss because he was a guy that took the top off the, the, the coverage, went up, went up and got it and was the, the tremendous athlete and all that. So, yeah, he did change the game in that sense. But if we're talking about body of work, that dude, you know, number 80 in San Fran, he's he's got his own deal man he he blows them away by far just because of the time the length of time and how long he did it and then there's something to be said about championships sorry like I, I don't know how, <laughs> it's convenient i don't know how many rings you know they all have but i know that that dude has rings and lifted that team up uh, and it started his his rookie year so well uh, I, I i don't think there's an argument so I just want to follow up on that, Jerry. I think Jerry kind of suffers from the John Stockton syndrome. He's not exactly like an Irvin Aikman or Dion putting his brand out post-retirement. Right. Uh, it almost seems like a prerequisite nowadays, especially with the newer generation, to be like a brand. For our listeners in their 20s, can you describe what made Jerry Rice so dominant besides the stick em gloves? Consistency. He was as consistent a football player as you could ever imagine. Every route looked the same. If he ran a slant, slant route, looked like a go route. If he ran a go route, looked like he was going to run a slant. He had tremendous body control and a willingness to do everything. Block, run across the middle, whatever route it was, he just didn't care. And physically, I don't know how many times I try to knock his teeth through the back of his head. He just had this willingness to get up and say, I'll be right back. And, and that was Jerry. And he's, he, you know, this guy wasn't a 4-3 guy. He wasn't the most athletic wide receiver where he went up and got balls in double coverage and all that. That, that wasn't his deal. I mean, but he was, he had tenacity, great route runner. And the only guy that, that you know, I was around a guy every day in practice in, in, in Michael Irvin, in which I don't know if anybody could match Mike's tenacity for the game. Like I was around the best, one of the best, if you know, in my opinion, every day and saw Michael Irvin. You know, watching Mike go through the process and thinking that he was one of the best, best, best. And then he look over at Jerry and his numbers are just out of this world, man. It's just it's hard to compare, you know, like the players today at, to those guys then. Because you know, and, and you're thinking about this in the 90s and when Jerry came in the 80s, the league was a running league. We ran the ball all the time. And you just happened to be on third down. You said, okay, let's, let's spread you out and, you know, find your receivers. I couldn't imagine those guys playing in the wild, wild west as it is now in which you can't touch the quarterback. You can't touch the wide receivers. It's always a pass interference. I mean, their numbers would – just think about how their numbers would be in today's game because back then I used to – if I get my hands on Jerry at the line scrimmage, he was going to the ground. I mean, I'm trying to put I'm, – I'm grabbing his helmet, face mask, everything to try to get him, from you know – off route how, how insane was the Deion Sanders experience walk me through what it was like to be primetime's 
teammate. Look, you know, you, you look, you think about Dion, and the one thing you always think is, you know, he's flamboyant, uh, which he is when prom Sundays when the lights come on. Oh yeah, but during the week he is low key. He's a comedian. The guy is a. There is not one day that you're gonna that's or one minute that's gonna come by he's not telling jokes or talking shit. He had the gift of gab and he loosened the room up all the time. Like there, were, I never felt like like there was pressure on me when I was around him because he'd always have something to loosen us up. And it was like not only the players but the coaches and everyone. That was just Dion. Never cussed. You would think that this dude would be a cusser. I've never heard him say one cuss word. He's never had a drink. And you can imagine Dallas Cowboys back then, we were drinking, we partied. We really partied. And he just, he, he was different and built differently than most. And I would say, speak to, speaking to his ability on the field, on the field, man, I don't know if there's a better athlete to ever play that game. I mean, hands, feet, he did things that no one else could do. Uh, and he impacted the game, not only on the defensive side of the ball, he played a little bit of wide receiver. And then on special teams, he affected the game in all three phases. Again, one of those guys that can go down as one of the greatest of all time. How much of that shtick do you think was actually authentic? And how much of it did he understand that early on? Branding was important. Oh, he understood it, man. And even today, I mean, to this day, he's been a salesman. He, he's understood how to sell himself and understood what the camera meant. And, you know, look, I, I can't tell you how many times he, you know, during, during the week where that camera came on, he popped on and it was different than everyone else because when the cameras come on, even after losses, even after a loss, he was going to make sure he got up there on that podium and stood up there and spoke. And I can't tell you how many times after a loss where I was like, hey, get the fucking camera out of my face, you know, and upset and all that. But that wasn't him, man. He just, he knew how to speak to it uh, and sell himself. But, you know, this is the same guy that, you know, when the camera's on, he is live and on TV. Camera's off, he's fishing, he's shooting at snakes on his land. He's a country boy. I mean, all the way country. It's two totally different people, man. It, I mean, totally different people. Because uh, when I'm around him, it's just laid back. He's in his sweats and he wants to go fish. And then when the cameras are on and it's time to go, he's prime time, Nick, and it shows itself. I want to talk about the current state of your former team because, you know, last month you made news like the current Cowboys, you know, tackle like it's flag football. It makes you cringe. You know, Dallas obviously finished six and 10 this season. Haven't made the past the divisional round since I believe you were in uniform. What do you think is broken in Dallas? Is it the leadership or the makeup of the team? Well, I think there's, well, there's a lot to it this year. And, you know, coach Mike McCarthy came in through a time where, you know, he had to deal with COVID. It didn't allow him to meet with his team on the field. And, and that's the hardest thing. When you come in as a head coach and everybody's like, oh, you're giving them an excuse. No, no, I think you have to give them a mulligan coming in, trying to implement your offense and defensive scheme via Zoom. It would be like us talking about, you know, what my coverages are and how we run. And we're talking about it here on Zoom, not on the field, but on the computer. And that's how he was running his meetings. Didn't have a chance to meet with Dak Prescott and the, the entire offense. He started the season, and the first thing they did is they lost their two bookend left uh, tackles, who are the two best offensive players on that team. I know they give all the credit to the guys on the perimeter, but Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins are the two best players, and Zach Martin, who's on the offensive line, are the three best players on that team. And 
they lost all three of those guys and they still continue to play. Like, and I'm not making excuses. I still think thought that they, they could have played harder at times, but defensively is where I saw the lapses, new defensive scheme. They're playing a three, four and a 43 defense. But what they didn't do is they didn't get back to the basics. The basics of football are blocking and tackling. Those are the basics. Those are the things that you, that's your foundation. If you can go back to just blocking and tackling, keeping it minimal, don't if, if your guys are busting coverages on the back end, then make you make sure you run maybe one or two coverages. Who gives a damn? You ain't got to be this exotic defense. Make sure you run one or two. They didn't get back to that until the very end of the season. The one thing I do, I will say about this team, even when they were undermanned and outpersonneled and didn't have the superstars, they played hard. They, they, they did play hard, and that's one thing I won't talk, take, take away from them. They played hard, even though they were missing tackles, which they kept on missing. They ran to the football, and they gave us effort. And there were a lot of people that were saying, well, they're soft. And, I, you know, someone said that I said they were soft. They, I never said they were soft. Soft is not a word that's going to come out of my mouth. I thought they missed a lot of tackles because they weren't, you know, focusing on the fundamentals. But they did – they gave a lot of effort, and they got something to build off of. We've talked about all the incredible Cowboy personalities throughout the years, but there's no better personality than Mr. Cowboy himself, Jerry Jones. What is the most Jerry Jones story that's ever Jerry Jones? That's ever Jerry Jones? <laughs> well, you just, you know, you can Google them and, and see the pictures. I don't, I look, I, <laughs> nothing to do with me. I, I think there were, there were some things like, in my opinion, Jerry Jones is, is the greatest owner uh, of all time, regardless of the sport. I would say that in the sense of, you know, this team has been irrelevant for 26 years, yet they are the number one franchise in the world. And that's because that man understands business. He understands how to market. Uh, he did, he's done a lot. I mean, there, there's no, the NFL is not where it is today without Jerry Jones pushing the envelope as far as sponsorship in the early 90s with Pepsi and Nike and and, and then almost getting sued by the league. You know, Jerry uh, was a pioneer and, and understood how to take the NFL, not just his brand, but the NFL to the next level. And, and it is where it is today because of the efforts of Jerry Jones. So I'll give him that. Now, on the GM side, well, that's not where I'm going. I'm not giving him a lot of credit. There. And I'm just being realistic. Love the man. Love who he is. And, and, and guys, you know, I worked 13, uh, 14 years at, at ESPN. And I'm, just, you know, I'm not there any longer. But I can tell you this, it was hard to criticize Jerry, even after the, all the lapses and after the product they put out on the field and whatnot, because I know the man's heart. Like, I know the man that when guys got in trouble, I mean, real trouble, like there were former players or got in, run into some financial issues or needed help, he was the first. Yeah, I, I remember being at a... Uh, I'm not going to name the foundation, but they were, I was at a, I'm on the board of a foundation and they were running short of money and didn't meet the need and was at the same table with Jerry and his wife and watch Jerry lean over and tell the executive director of that foundation, I got it covered. Don't tell anyone. I sat there and watched that. Like that is, that is the man that we're talking about. And I know he takes a lot of criticism. I'm one that always criticize, <laughs> you know, I have to criticize him for the, for the talent that they have on the field or, or the lapse of winning a championship. But as far as the man, it's hard to, to criticize the man because he, he's been there and, and it didn't matter if he's black, white, 
purple, he's going to protect his family and friends. We had Ryan Leaf on the show, and he was only there for a year, and he praised Jerry Jones just like that, and that blew my mind. A guy who you know was pretty much out of the league already, and he said Jerry still takes care of him. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, he's always been a resource, and it's you know I, right now I have two two businesses, and you know anytime I you know in one of my companies we represent the Cowboys, and and that's a direct reflection of Jerry never forgetting his former players. So one of the things that's really impressive about you is how just open, authentic you are on this. You're cursing, you're having fun. How different is it when you have to go on an ESPN or some type of network show and you've got to put on broadcast, Darren Woodson, versus, <laughs> hey, I can be on Endless Hustle and throw fuck around and whatever else. How much How much of a dichotomy difference is it all? No, our, how, how hard was it for you? I mean, you did this for years. You can't tell me that it was in you to say, what the fuck? You know, you did, you can't tell me that, that that didn't cross your mind at some point. I've got my producers yelling at me because I curse too much on these shows. Meanwhile, I would drop fuck every sentence. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I love it. That's how I talk in real life. I say dude and I say fuck every sentence. And meanwhile, they're like, you can't say fuck anymore. I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> Somewhere Dion is crying a single tear with all <laughs> Yeah, you know what? But listen, I've been around like John Gruden is was doing Monday Night Football and I've known John for a long time I mean even before he was a head coach and every word out of his mouth is the F word and I can't say it right now because someone just walked in the house but I can't but every word is the F bomb and I, I when they hired him and brought him on I was like John how are you there's no way you survive there's no it's coming out it's just it, it's gonna come out and he he could turn it on and turn it off, but when he, the mic wasn't hot, you better believe f bombs are flying uh, all over the place. And again, I, you know, I work with Trey Wingo and everybody else, man. You know, that industry, you're gonna say some things, and then the camera comes on, and you're like, "Well, hey, I, you know, you're back to <laughs> that camera guy." That's hilarious. I gotta ask, you know, if you were a betting man, Darren, who would you put your money on to win the Super Bowl first? The Dallas Cowboys or the Cleveland Browns? That's a man. That's a hard one. Fifty grand right now. Put it on the table. Yeah, that I, I'm ashamed that I have to think about it this way. I would, I would go with the Cowboys, dependent on if they sign Dak Prescott back to a long-term contract. And you believe they should? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Look, I mean, we, we I talked earlier about leadership and showing up early, staying late. My my office, I office. At my real estate com uh, company offices at the Star in Frisco. It's the headquarters of the Cowboys. And we look down on, from third floor, look down at the practice field every day. And in the offseason, he's the first one to show up. And he's not just throwing to his first team wide receivers, Amari Cooper and, and that group. He's throwing to the special teamers. He's throwing to free agents. He's throwing to everyone that walks. If you're willing to work, he's willing to throw. And he's built that way, works out all the time. You're not going to concern yourself with Dak Prescott off the field. You know what you're getting. You definitely know what you're getting. And you know what you're getting in that locker room. You know, it's a shame that they haven't gotten it done uh, because I've seen so many other quarterbacks who have gotten signed to these big contracts that no one is bitched about. No one has complained about it. But now Dak Prescott comes up and he's, you know, 
he's up for a contract and the, the, the number is 33 million or 35 million and you don't want to pay him. It's just, it's just, I know people always say, well, you shouldn't have to, you know, pay a certain person, this, 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 and that. Hey, look, if the market dictates that you need to pay a quarterback that, and that's the going rate, then you pay the quarter. If you want him to be a part of your franchise, then you pay him accordingly. And the Cowboys, for some odd reason, haven't made that adjustment. I think that changes this year. I think they pay him, and, they, and it's, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a franchise tag. I think they absolutely paid Dak Prescott the large contract that he's looking for. So on a side note, I've been stalking Kareem Laramore this whole time, and I found his LinkedIn page. It oh. looks like for the last 12 years, he's been a real estate investor at 4.1 Realty. This might be your chance to help him again. He's in the Do real estate. Do we have the same system. Kareem Laramore? Are we talking about the same guy? It's, it's his picture. I found him. He's got the, the picture is from Compton, like 1974, but it's him. He's yeah. got a LinkedIn page. Wow. He's a Navy SEAL too, actually, I think. <laughs> I've got to get, we got to get Kareem on this show. He's my new get for like all time. I've got, I need Kareem Laramore Prano. Yeah, I need see now. There you go. Now I'm going to research him now and probably reach out to him and do some business with him. I'm telling you, you might have changed his life here. <laughs> So what's next? What's next for you, Darren? Where where would you like to kind of see everything go for yourself over the next five, 10, 15 years? Well, I, I, I'm going to continue to press as hard as I can in, in, with my businesses that I have. It looks, I got four kids, and and I'm not looking to like you know I'm all, I'm not that guy that says I'm looking to leave a legacy, but I want my kids to see me get up every day, 5:30 a.m. and go to work and and have a purpose in lo- in life. Now they need to see that from their father. Uh, so I will continue along the path of growing my business, ESRP Commercial Real Estate. We are growing tremendously, and, and, I, and I have 80-some employees that work there and that, uh, that I feel are, I'm not even going to say they're employees, they're all colleagues of mine. And shit, they run the business. I'm, I'm just one of the partners in the business. But uh, I want to see my, my, my commercial real estate uh, firm continue to grow. I want to see Counterfine, my so, my software company to continue to grow and take the next leaps uh, uh, therefore. So, you know, that that's me. I'm a father, man. I love my uh, time with my kids. I love having flexibility and life is good, man. I know 20, everybody's complaining about 2020 and about, you know, COVID and all that. Look, man, let that shit ride. It's time to go. I mean, it is what it is. It's part of life. Now it's time to, to, to really get going and move forward in 2021. Who's the toughest quarterback you ever faced? I'm always curious with these types of questions. Who was who was just the beast for you? Brett Favre, I, I would say he was a guy. Like, listen, there were some tough ones. I didn't see a lot of John Elway in the AFC. Uh, I didn't see a lot of Dan, Dan Marino. Saw him here and there. I saw Brady at the end of my career. Of course, Peyton. But Brett Favre was a guy that loved the game. I, I love playing against Brett because it could be the toughest part of the game and the last minute and a half to go in a game and it's a tight football game and he's having a good time talking shit, you know, laughing and joking with you, even the opposing teams. But he just had this, you know, passion for the game. I used to, you know, I was enamored by it because you just didn't see that in most players. Most players just play the game because it's what they do. Now, this it meant more to him than just the game and he threw the ball like a freaking it was a rifle that ball popped out of his hands and there were times everybody always say well he's gonna throw you one yeah yeah he threw me a couple but damn near broke my fingers at the same time 
because <laughs> he threw the ball so hard. So he, he, he was a tremendous athlete, tremendous competitor. When did you know it was over? When did you know the career was finally over? That it was time to leave. You honestly, you want to know? Honestly? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you honestly how I, how I knew. I just told the story to my son the other day. So it was in my 11th year. And I knew then that, okay, wait a minute. Things aren't the same. So we're, we practiced that morning. And again, I used to cover the slot receiver. And it was, you know, of course, it was always hard. You know, even when I was young, it was hard to cover. But then at the end of my career, it became that harder. But I'm watching every practice. After every practice, we would watch the film. And we were practicing, and we had this, what we call seven-on-seven, seven, where the defense and the offense goes against each other. It's not the offensive line. It's just the receivers and defensive backs go against each other. And I'm watching the film, and Mike Zimmer, you guys know Zimmer, the Minnesota Vikings. He's our defensive back coach, and he has the clicker. I'm watching this player cover the wide receiver, and the wide receiver just runs right by the dude, right? And I'm like, damn. Dude was sitting in his quicksand, and I look back up, and he rewinds it. I'm like, shit, that's me. It was me. Like, I saw myself for the first time go, you can't run. Like, he just ran right by. And I had, we had these hoodies on. We had these hoodies back then. And I put that hoodie on for a little bit and started thinking, shit, what's life after football really look like? Because that dude got ran by. And that's, that's the first time that I really figured out, like, age has never lost. Like, age will not lose, dude. He, he's going to catch up. And that monkey, he jump, when he jumps on your back, you're a totally different guy. And so that's when I realized, yeah, I probably have my, my lifespan is a lot shorter than I thought. That's incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. I mean, in a, in a league where it's what, three years is it? I think you, you quadrupled that. Yeah. So I think you're doing all right. Yeah. So, Woodson, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining the podcast. It was awesome okay. to pick your brain here. Hey, you're awesome, Matt, man. Matt Art, thanks again for having me, brothers. And uh, God bless, man. And good luck, man. Yeah, Same here. Well. Thanks for a great, great chat, man. Thanks, brother. Matt, needless to say, Darren Woodson, as we told him on the show, is welcome back anytime. That guy was just a ton of fun, man. I had no idea what to expect. And especially when you're dealing with broadcasters, you just you feel like there's going to be a filter. And we've been so fortunate this week between Aaron Andrews, who has lit up the world. I've gotten texts from people I haven't heard from in like decades who are like, man, I love that Aaron Andrews interview to now this Darren Woodson chat. We are getting the best of the best with people on TV who are removing the filter and letting us into their authentic personality. Absolutely love this cat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for a guy who's, you know, been a career uh, cowboy, I thought he'd be like more reserved in his answers about kind of the current state of the Cowboys, especially, but he wasn't looking at the team through rose colored glasses. He actually gave a really honest you know, take on what's wrong with the Cowboys, how to fix it going forward. And I thought that was super refreshing. He, to me, I wouldn't be surprised if he transitions as a GM somewhere. I mean, maybe with the Cowboys or something, because his analytical mind and his kind of structural mind on how things need to get done isn't just 
it's not the talking head. You know, some people be like, they need to go out and get to Sean Watson. You know, he's a guy who's like, they need to get back to basics. You need to tackle, you need to block. You know, he's talking about the defenses, the three, four to the four, three. So his mind and the way he works and his kind of temperament, he's always even keeled and he's very a thoughtful guy. So I really wouldn't be surprised if we see Darren Woodson. This is my hot take again. Darren Woodson in a managerial role or an executive role with the Cowboys or, you know, some team that needs him. I feel like you're lobbying to go get a job with him. I think this was like your kiss ass moment. Like, Hey, Darren, bring me with you when you get hired. (laughs) If you don't think I'm sending this to them after you're out of your mind, you're like, Darren, just check this out. I'm in man. I'm all in on the Darren Woodson train. No, I also loved, by the way, I remember those cowboy teams. When you think about a team full of alpha males, it'd be hard-pressed to find a team that had more alphas than that Cowboy team between Emmett, Troy, Darren, Irvin, Daryl Johnston, John. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And Darren was naming all the guys, and I literally had forgotten about, like, the offensive linemen, the defensive linemen. And you're like, holy cow, this team was so stocked full of alphas and Hall of Famers. It's mind-boggling. You could actually probably stack the great Cowboys teams up against any all-time team, and they probably match up really well. And hearing his take on how they were able to manage those personalities, the influence of Jimmy Johnson, yeah, incredibly fascinating stuff. Darren, thanks for a fantastic interview. Like we said, you're welcome back anytime. 100%. Okay, that's all for your Thursday episode, episode 30 of the Endless Hustle Show We have a nice little episode for you coming up next Tuesday. We have Anchorman star David Koechner, and we have uh, a guy who just signed on to USA Basketball, Joe Johnson. So a little mix of both with you there, and it's going to be a good little show, Arthur. I feel like it's the Legends episode. Joe, obviously, prolific scorer in the NBA. Koechner between The Office and Anchorman. And then, of course, all the other things he touched on. You forget how much that guy did in his career. It's like a little miniature Legends episode. So I'm super excited about this one, Matt. Absolutely. All right. So here are our plugs, fellas. As usual, if you haven't subscribed to Endless Hustle, do wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find all of these visual episodes on BroBabble's YouTube channel. um, And you can follow us, Endless Hustle, on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. And on Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. You can follow me at Mr. Cohan, K-E-O-H-A-N, and Arthur. On Twitter, I'm at Arthur Cade. Instagram at It's Me, Arthur Cade. Guys, we're back on Tuesday with our Legends episode, although we seem to always have Legends, but this is another one. David Kackner, Joe Johnson, can't wait to share these incredible chats with you guys. We'll see you Tuesday. Peace.